Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Uh, Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany, as always, or, you know, as usually. Last week we were both in Berlin, but this week Adam Twos, uh, the podcast namesake, is back in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, uh, the second data point uh, this week will be on... Africa, and uh, specifically on Africa's demographics. Adam also has an article on this subject that is coming out the same day as the podcast. So if you're listening to this, you can also check out foreignpolicy.com for Adam's review essay. But first, we're going to do something more from the news, and the data point here is 3.6. That is the unemployment rate right now in the United States. That's the lowest it's been in years, going back to the pre-pandemic days. It's the 12th straight month that more than 400,000 jobs were created. Last month's hiring keeping the unemployment rate at 3.6%. And yet at the same time, stock markets are falling, inflation is up, and uh, people in the United States generally seem uh, to be unhappy with the economic situation. There is a wide disconnect right now between Wall Street and Main Street. Inflation fears continue to rattle the markets. President Biden taking credit for what he's calling the strongest job creation economy in modern times. So I guess the question becomes, how does all this fit together? And and that's what I was hoping we could discuss. So to start, Adam, I was wondering if you could put the strength of this current labor market, again, 3.6% unemployment, in, in some historic perspective, I mean, how far back do we really need to reach to find a comparable uh, situation? Well, if you just take the unemployment rate at face value, then we are exactly back to the glory days of the Trump administration. You know, this was the number that Trump was touting at the beginning of 2020 before COVID struck and which he thought confidently assumed, I think, was going to secure his re-election. It's a slightly lower unemployment rate than was achieved at the height of the pre-2008 housing bubble boom of the you know 2007 period. In fact, to find comparable rates of unemployment, and this was also something that Trump used to go on about, right? you have to go back to the glory days of the late 1960s and the, you know, the long boom after World War II. So the real heyday of, of, of 20th century growth to find figures as low as this, it, it feels in some senses, and if you read the headlines, you'd say America was at full employment at this point. The more complicated news emerges if you don't look at the unemployment rate, which is measured in terms of the number of people asking for jobs, registering for unemployment benefit, and so on. But if you look instead at the percentage of the population of prime age, which economists define as being between 15 and 64, the share of that American population that's actually working, it's it's only 71% right now. 
which is lower than it was in January 2020. So this is the flip side, right? So here you want a higher number rather than a lower number. And, and, and this is a lower number than in January 2020 and markedly lower than the peak employment rate of the American population in recent history in 2000, which was 74.5%. So obviously a lot of factors at work in that number, because that's not just the people who are in the labor force, think of themselves as being in the labor force and then register as unemployed. This is more generally of all Americans who might conceivably be working in the standard age bracket, how many of them are. So that includes uh, people who are ill or people who are um, in education or parents who've decided to stay at home and look after children. Obviously, for a long period of time, that was predominantly women. And so on that number reached its peak in 2000, and we're still some way away from the peak there. So viewed against that benchmark, you'd say there's still plenty of Americans who perhaps under better circumstances might prefer to work. But strictly from a point of view of the labor market statistics, this is a, a remarkable number that we're seeing right now. So this is a, a kind of boom. I mean, maybe not the biggest boom uh, ever, given some of that, that context you're providing, but, but still a, a pretty big bang. So should we expect as a result of this a greater increase in wages? I mean, does a lower supply of labor, so I mean, there's a lower unemployment rate, so lower supply of labor generally, does that lead to an increase in the price of labor? I mean, you know, by just supply and demand? I mean, more generally, does a kind of hot labor market like the United States has right now, does that then generally feed inflation in the broader economy or does it detract from it? A tighter labor market certainly does lead to upward pressure on wages. The market functions at least to that extent. And statistical exercises, regressions seem to show that there's a coefficient of about 0.5 on this relationship. So a 1% difference in unemployment makes a half percentage point difference to wages. Um, so that's a real thing. And what is very striking in the American case is how dramatic the differential here is between more and less favored workers. So America is obviously a society organized in a very dominant way around racial hierarchy. And so that's one of the ways in which this shows up. And a one percentage point fall in unemployment has a hugely disproportionate positive impact, both on the employment and the wages paid to black workers in the United States. In fact, if the economy had been run hot in recent decades, we think a very large part of the measured gap between black earnings and white earnings in the US would essentially have evaporated, both because black workers would have earned higher wages and because more of them would have been employed. So this is a key driver of equality, inequality across all of the different facets of inequality in the United States, is, is how tight the labor market is. Does it lead to inflation? Well, that's a that's another question, a slightly separate question. Um, wages do respond to prices because, again, you know, workers workers can do the math. They they can figure out that they that their real wages are falling if they don't adjust. Um, there are moments in history where you can point to wage pressure driving inflation in the sense that wages took the initiative and trade unions classically would take the initiative in the 1970s to adjust wages. That isn't our situation right now. So right now, real wages are falling. They're not just falling in the US, they've fallen in Europe as well. Wages are going up, but they're lagging prices. So net, uh, there's a real wage decline. In fact, if you break it down, as the um, Economic Policy Institute has done, the EPI, uh, of the inflation in the US since the second quarter of 2020, so since the beginning of the COVID crisis, uh, no more than 8% of the overall increase in prices is attributable to wage pressure. The vast majority of it is to do with input costs and uh, margins, profit margins being charged by companies. 
So wages in the current inflation cycle are playing a subordinate role and in fact uh, are not keeping up with, with prices. So I'd like to just maybe burrow down here then a bit more to, to, to understand sort of the, maybe the difference about how sort of economists think about some of these questions versus, you know, politicians or other public figures. Because, I mean, it does seem theoretically, at least, I mean, you were just giving some of the reasons to think otherwise. But theoretically, there's a point, I guess, at which low unemployment could itself be a kind of economic problem. I mean, it could drive inflation in some ways or just lead to an overheating of the economy. It's the term I, I see when I'm reading up on the news. Um, but I mean, in practical political value, I mean, did, did, has any politician ever made that case? I mean, has there ever been a kind of practical political insight in a democratic sense about low unemployment being a problem? That's the thing, right? <laughs> um, it's very difficult to see how a political actor in a democracy could openly advocate higher unemployment. But um, people say other things, like uh, they'll talk about labor shortages. I mean, a shortage is a pretty weird thing in a market economy. And as President Biden quite rightly said, well, if you've got a labor shortage, you know, I know the answer to that problem. It is to pay them more. Um, that is the way to address a, a labor shortage. The, the only people that you'll find in policy discourse who explicitly, more or less explicitly articulate a preference for a slightly higher level of unemployment will be central bankers. Um, because they think of managing the trade-off between unemployment and inflation. This is the so-called Phillips curve relationship um, after, uh, uh, I think he was a New Zealand economist, uh, in the, in the mid-century who, who crafted a model uh, in which these two relationships, the unemployment and inflation, were juxtaposed to each other. And they think of themselves as navigating along that curve with higher unemployment giving you lower inflation and lower unemployment giving you higher inflation. If your job is price stability, then it becomes rational to pick higher unemployment. And that's essentially what central bankers do when they do the opposite of overheating, when they cool the economy down, what they're talking about doing is raising the interest rate so as to increase unemployment when it comes to the crunch. Yeah, so I guess it's not a coincidence that central bankers are, are kinds of policymakers, but they, they don't run for, for office. Uh, they don't uh, have to, yes. to win elections. It's not a mandate you'd want to run on, yeah. Yeah. So the next question is actually uh, drawn from one of our listeners. Folks listening now may, may have heard me last week making an appeal to uh, folks to go to our webpage uh, at foreignpolicy.com where they can leave us a message, either suggestions for questions or data points or, or just general comments that we're hoping to also incorporate into the show. And yeah, sure enough, we got a, a lot of them already. And one of them was the following. Hi, this is Tim, a long-time listener, first-time caller. I've got a suggestion for a data point 7.5, which is the uh, amount percentage-wise by which U.S. productivity dropped most recently. Maybe a discussion from you guys about what productivity means, what's the practical implications of a 7.5% drop, and how meaningful productivity is at all um, in an economy that uh, is increasingly service-orientated as opposed to manufacturing easily measured wi widgets. So thank you guys very much. Obviously, he pro was proposing an entire segment about productivity, but, but, but I, I wanted to sort of uh, uh, apply this to our conversation about the, the labor market because I, I wonder, he's pointing out that productivity seems to be falling in the United States. At the same time, we're having this whole discussion about how the labor market is, is running really hot. It's booming. I mean, how do those two 
points sort of fit together and and i guess more just briefly could you sort of give listeners a sense of yeah what does a country's productivity mean in the first place we absolutely should do a segment about productivity in fact maybe an entire episode there really isn't anything more important um and so this is a fantastic suggestion and we're definitely going to run with it so just this is the first installment of an answer why does productivity matter so much because it's what we're really interested in we're not you know because output if output is is produced by us working every hour you know of the day and and devoting all of the production that we that we generate to investment which we then don't get to consume then then that's a you know that may be a rapidly growing and high output uh, economy but it's not um it doesn't satisfy our, our interests which are to work as little as possible to use as little resource as possible to get the maximum out and that's what productivity measures is the ratio between input and output and so we are acutely interested in it. And there really, in many ways, isn't any more important number uh, about an economy than its productivity. And, you know, we approximate it for, you know, for simplicity's sake, by a measure like GDP per capita, which is why, which isn't a great measure of productivity, but it points in that kind of direction because it's the output per person in a society. And, you know, there's a certain quantum of the society that will work. And so then you approximate what labor productivity is. But in any case, productivity is a key measure. And yes, there was a bit of a shock a few days ago when um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the non-farm labor productivity in the United States in the first quarter of 2022 had fallen by 7.5%. And that's if that were real and we had to take that seriously at face value, it would be a complete disaster because uh, it would mean whatever happened this year, uh, whatever else happened this year, and we're very unlikely to grow by 7%. Um, it would have been offset by the fact that we now had to work harder to generate the same amount of output by seven percent. So that is a that's that's really bad news if it's if we can take it at face value. So so the immediate comeback on this is it's it one shouldn't read these this particular index quite that way because basically this index is calculated from the relationship between two very big numbers which move independently of each other, which broadly speaking is a good thing, which is why this is a meaningful measure. But that means that in any given quarter, and especially when we're talking quarter to quarter growth in this index, so this is literally 7.5% between the period, which is October, November, December 21, compared to January, February, March 2022, that up and down that we shouldn't get too panicked about. Because what we're basically taking is a very broad measure of output, and we're comparing that with a very broad measure of employment. And in this particular cycle, because of some underlying shifts in production which have to do with restocking slowing down after the covid shock and on the other hand a particular surge in imports which cut down the output from the american economy on the one hand so we had a damp production number and we had a surging employment number in the same three-month period and hence this shocking downward movement so that's the good news the bad news, however, is that even allowing for all of that, if you smooth this number out as you properly should, if you look over the the longer term, the basic news, which is what we should make this big segment about, Cam, is that productivity growth in the United States, though not negative, it's not actually shrinking. The problem is productivity growth is very, very, very slow and has been since the 2006-07 period. You can't even blame it on the 2008 crisis. So there is a huge issue here, and it's determinative, really, of the expectations of this generation and future generations of Americans. It's not a story. It's not a problem confined to the United States, and we should really talk about it and dig into it. But this 7.5 number, this negative 7.5, is a bit of a shock statistic. 
let's just see what happens over the course of the year. If it were to continue, then we'd really have a story. And frankly, we really not be talking about anything else. But I expect it to settle down around an annual, annual average growth of about 1%, one and a half, maybe max, could be slightly less. And that will be the story, this depressing slow growth. Got it. Okay. Well, thanks for the question. And it does sound like then there was some noise in that data. It's good to have that clarified a bit. But I guess finally, though, to end, if the general state of the U.S. economy is that it's sort of the demand side that, that is overheated, like if we're talking about a labor market that is really running very hot, and, you know, you were talking about central bankers being concerned uh, and wanting to cool the economy down, maybe. I mean, is there anything the government can do to sort of compensate on on the other side, on the supply side to sort of compensate? I mean, I mean, what are the policy fixes for chronically insufficient supply in an economy? So this is really the trillion dollar question. Um, this whole issue of productivity and how we compensate for chronically insufficient supplies like the alpha and omega of economics. And there isn't a question that preoccupies the folks in the White House more than this precise question right now, because if they could suddenly increase supply, maybe they could get inflation under control. So the sort of supply side policy that you ideally need to fix an inflation problem is something that's super light touch and basically consists of immediate organizational interventions with no extra spending, which just take the pile of resources we've currently got and shuffle them around in a way which means they're more productive, which is why the White House has had, ever since it came in, a Biden-Harris supply chain disruption task force at work in the White House trying to unblock the logistical system of the United States. And they've done things like reduce the dwell time of containers at the great ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach by imposing fines for containers that sit on the dock for longer than nine days. And that's had the, the effect of creating space in, in the port. So all you're doing there is encouraging people to shuffle the containers around more quickly, same number of containers, same port, uh, and that in and of itself has has increased the the throughput. They've built you know overflow container facilities for the port of Savannah. Um, they've secured a kind of notional commitment to experiment with twenty four seven operation of the same port facilities in Los Angeles and Long Beach. So you're making more out of your existing capacity, and that's how you can unstick this. And ultimately, you've got something like the freight logistics optimization works which is a complex new data system, a system of communication, which will allow American shippers to track containers much more effectively. That'll, however, take months, if not years, to come online. But those are the sorts of supply-side measures that would really help with inflation, precisely because they are resource light. They don't amplify the demand shock that we're currently suffering. Got it. And, and just so I understand, the alternative to this would basically just be on the demand side to sort of take money out of people's yeah. pockets yeah it's nasty stuff well let's you know wish them luck on that supply side policy so that we can all continue enjoying uh, i guess a booming a booming labor market we will have to leave it there for now and maybe maybe we'll return at some point to the subject hi this show is sponsored by better help so there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and 
I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point we have for you is 60%. That is the share of the approximately 1.25 billion people who live in Africa right now who are under the age of 25. You know, we haven't discussed Africa much on this podcast, but there is actually no shortage of fascinating data points when it comes to that continent and its economy. This population boom will be dominated by one continent. Africa. The population of Africa is expected to double in the next 30 years to more than two and a half billion people. And yeah, this demographic bulge struck us as the one to focus on right now. I mean, just to cite another potential data point, apparently by 2050, one third of global youth will be in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is a huge story for not just now, but for the coming decade. So just to dive in, Adam, I mean, from your perspective, can Africa's economies sustain this level of population growth? I mean, what is the model of a future African economy, just given these demographic patterns? Yeah, I mean, the demographic dynamics here are, are really staggering. And it's, in effect, the sustained growth in population that is the real puzzle. The extraordinary dramatic thing that we're seeing in Africa, not everywhere, it's a huge and diverse continent, but in several rapid growth countries, and some of which are going to be large, what we see is a falling death rate, a falling mortality rate, which is the side of progress and development. But what we then do not see is any fall off in the fertility rate. And in fact, in surveys done by the UN, we see both men and women, independently of each other, saying that they want to maintain very large families going on into the future, six, seven children. And so you have countries, you know, a very large number of African countries with annual population growth 
of 2.5% or more. So the question that essentially is going forward is what would an economic future look like? It really isn't something where we can say, and this is what makes it so dramatic, where we could say we know what the answer to that question is. And, you know, this is the formula, this is the model. It's really a giant puzzle. I mean, take Nigeria, for instance, which is a burgeoning country. You know, we think it's going to hit half a billion population. Certainly by the end of the century, it will be one of the largest countries in the entire world. It currently has the largest number of absolutely poor people of any country in the world. It overtook India in that category. It is also distinguished by the fact that it has the highest level of GDP per kilowatt hour of utility supplied electricity. So you can take that as a sign of the genius of improvisation of the Nigerian economy, that these folks have figured out a way of working around the fact that they have no electricity supply they can rely on. So they produce more output per unit of utility electricity than any other economy in the world. Or you can take it as an indictment of the fact that they have no infrastructure. And that's that's really the central question is where will the capital, where will the infrastructure come from to sustain this explosive population growth? By 2050, between one in five and one in four of all of the people on the planet will be in Africa. When India and China return, if you like, to their positions of prominence. This is as a restoration of a familiar balance. This was true of the world economy in the all the way through to the 1700s. When Africa emerges as the hub of between a fifth and a quarter of the world's population, we're in a radically different world that we just simply none of us has ever inhabited before. <laughs> I like how you refer to the 1700s as a familiar familiar time i i i, <laughs> <laughs> well, I say historians yes, can see i know I, you know but anyway you know you're describing the the economic questions here as kind of as new and, and and unclear i mean but maybe are we seeing foreign investors treating africa right now as a, as a big opportunity i mean presumably they like to look ahead a little bit and they can do the same math that we're we're discussing here you know the share of the population that will, you know, the global population that will be comprised by Africa soon is so huge. I mean, or is foreign investment in Africa still mostly driven by foreign governments and political calculations, that kind of thing? We, we are beginning to see a shift in a very positive direction in that Africa tripled its share of global foreign direct investment, which is, you know, when a company builds infrastructure or builds a factory. So that tripled in the last two decades at least prior to the COVID crisis. And the direction of that investment has also shifted, diversifying away from raw materials into manufacturing and, and services. So there was a lot of investment in the last 10 years or so in areas like logistics, communications, IT services, chemicals. And that matters because it suggests that we're moving away from the old extractive pattern of investment in Africa to more broad-based development. The, the problem is that though these trends are all in the right direction and the scale of the changes sounds large, the problem is we're starting from a super low base. So in 2000, Africa only attracted 1% of global foreign direct investment. And in 2018, it's 3%. So it's still grossly inadequate compared to the share of Africa in global population, which is heading towards 20% right now and will grow ever larger over time. Furthermore, Africa's participation in value chains, the, the, the economic side of the supply chain story, right, the, the chains through which value is generated, has remained very low throughout this period at, at 2% or so. And this is 
completely in contrast with the situation in the Asia Pacific region, where we've seen a huge surge in foreign direct investment. Asia, by the period just before COVID, accounted for almost a third of global foreign direct investment was going to Asia. And so Africa, like Europe and the United States, is being squeezed by the emergence of Asia as the as the great the great driver of economic growth globally. The, the upside of that from Africa's point of view is that Asia is also emerging with China in the lead as a, as a source of foreign direct investment. But again, the, the problem is simply the scale. The trends are all in the right direction, but they're just simply nowhere near adequate. How do these massive demographic trends that we've been discussing in Africa, I mean, how do they interact with climate change, which obviously is, is another enormous trend that we're all facing? In very alarming ways. The African population is far more heavily dependent than any other population in the world on agriculture and often rather small scale agriculture, all of which will be very badly affected by above all water shortages, which is, I think, the, the major source of concern. And so the World Bank, in a series of reports, has estimated that as many as 86 million Africans may be forced to migrate within their own countries by 2050, largely driven by the search for secure sources of water. And what we're going to see, therefore, is clustering of populations around secure sources like the Lake Victoria Basin, which then places those areas under massive stress. And it's quite likely that we'll see competition there between farmers and grazers which is one of the most long-standing issues of, of tension in Africa, which then often spills over into ethnic tension between different groups because the sedentary farmers come from different populations than the migrant herders. So it's a very dangerous situation, I think, and it's a, one of the great tragedies of the climate change problem that the people who will be hit hardest by it are the people who are least responsible for the problem. Africa emits a tiny share of global CO2, and also, of course, the people who have least resources to meet the challenge. To think through how this situation applies in practice, I mean, to consider this from, from Europe's perspective, I mean, Europe is geographically on Africa's doorstep. Is Europe taking all of these trends seriously enough, as far as you can tell? I mean, the, the combination of demography and, and climate change in Africa, I mean... This is an enormous economic and foreign policy challenge, what you're describing. I mean, w w is there evidence of, of Europe treating it that way? It really does dwarf the problems, for instance, facing the United States and its neighbours in Central America, which will also be very severely affected by climate change, but are, of course, tiny by comparison in terms of population. So the scale of this challenge is huge, and it's, of course, overshadowed by the colonial past. Africa was divided up between the European empires by the late 19th century. And, and before that, of course, it was the object of exploitation in the form of both raw material extraction and above all slavery. So this is a, is a difficult relationship to manage the African states to find themselves by their independence from their former colonial overlords. It's also a, a relationship overshadowed by a long history of good intentions pronouncements on European and African relations, and most recently from the Euro-African summit that took place at the beginning of 2022, are overshadowed by the fact that there's been a lot of these. I mean, the, the foundational moment for the new relationship between the EU and the African Union was at Cairo 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago in 2000, where a high-minded declaration was issued about the need for Europe and Africa to work together. There followed European involvement 
in the debt relief actions of the early 2000s, which actually did substantially write down a large uh, burden of debt that many African countries were struggling with. But then there were more good intentions. The problem with all of these pronouncements is not the lack of vision, if you like. It's the it's the willingness to really put flesh on the bones of these plans, to back them up with actual policies that will make a difference and with money. Is Europe willing to open its agricultural markets on preferential terms to African producers for whom agriculture is a key path of development? And are they willing to back promises of you know, mutual interest in development with money. And the the German Marshall Plan with Africa of 2017 was typical in this respect. You know, it announced that Africa needed to generate at least 20 million new jobs per year to meet the demographic challenges of the continent. And then Germany stumped up 2.1 billion euros per annum in funding. So there's a huge discrepancy between the scale of the problem and Africa's needs and the willingness of Europe to actually back its commitments with money. So this is a troubled relationship, one with a history that is very complicated and a long track record now of decades of good intentions. And really the question is, in coming years, whether those will be met with real money. The the latest EU plan is the so-called Gateway Programme, the Global Gateway Programme. That has uh, reserved $300 billion for investment in, in infrastructure. A large part of that is earmarked for Africa. But really, that will be the acid test, I think, in coming years as to whether we see something like a European One Belt, One Road program rolled out in across Africa. I mean, in a certain way, what you're describing sort of sounds a bit heartening in the sense that it seems like you're saying the problems here are quantitative. I mean, like that, that this is not grounds for fatalism. We kind of know what would need to be done. It's, it's just a matter of, I guess, putting in the investment. It's unfortunately true, though, of, of so many global problems, right? It's not for lack of good ideas and visionary mm. schemes and even calculations of how much money we need. In the end, it so often simply comes down to the failure to pull those resources together. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that's good news or, or bad news uh, that the problem is just a, a lack of money, but it's clarifying in any, in any case. So, yes, we will uh, have to leave it there for now. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound, and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.